Before I uh, begin with the sermon, let's respond to Jeff's request to pray for him and just do so corporately. So join me in prayer, please. Father, we know as we have been in the Gospel of John that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. He was with God, that all things have been created through Him. We know that the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. This is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we do pray for the conversations that have taken place, and most specifically that will take place this afternoon, that by your Spirit, you would open the eyes of men who need Christ, not their understanding of Christ, but the revelation of Christ as in the Word. We understand that these things are not a matter of intellect, but they must be spiritually discerned. And so we thank you for the example of our faithful brothers who have just by faith gone out door by door and presented Christ as you have revealed he is in your word. Lord, would you continue to use them in their efforts and by your spirit would you cause their hearers to be born again. Pray that there would be great confidence in your word as I know Jeff and Morgan most recently, but other people have gone out as well. They wouldn't care what man thinks about them, but they would simply, with great patience and with great humility, speak the truth in love. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you, Lord, that we have men who do these things. And wherever we find ourselves, whether it be going door to door at Starbucks or to our neighbors, whatever it is, Lord, help us to be faithful to present Christ as he truly is, for he is our only hope and the only hope in this world. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. Our text this morning will be John 13, verses 1 through 20. John 13, verses 1 through 20. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that chapter 13 begins the second half of the Gospel of John, at least in terms of theme. Jesus' earthly ministry, as we mentioned last week, has just concluded in John chapter 12. And now here at the beginning of chapter 13, the focus shifts to Jesus' private ministry to his earthly disciples. And I once had a professor who described the transition from John chapter 12 to John chapter 13 in terms of an action movie. As you know, the first 12 chapters are indeed action-packed. Jesus had been preaching and he had been teaching. He had been performing many miracles. He had been performing many signs, as John would say. Moreover, Jesus had made some of the most amazing claims that anyone had ever made. Therefore, some people loved him, yet many people did not. And in terms of an action movie, you would think of the cinematography, different cam camera angles, some shaking, some moving along. We have zipped through the first three years of his ministry. And the opposite, opposition against the Lord Jesus Christ had been mounting. But as we've heard, his hour had not yet come. This is akin to an action movie, but the difference is this. This is real. 
This is truth. This actually happened. However, there is a significant scene change wherein the main character is about to die. And that is John 13. The screen turns black, the sound is muted, and everything begins to move in slow motion. So with that preface in mind, I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may know that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise for the person and work of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we ask that you would help us to see him as he truly is, to see ourselves as we truly are. Through the proclamation of your word, would we adore Christ and would we follow the example that Christ has set before us? We can only do this 
by your grace and in the strength that you provide for your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word this morning. Have your way in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the gospel? If I were to ask you that, many of you would respond, the gospel is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why this news of the Lord Jesus Christ is good, well, it's many reasons, but the one I'm going to focus on is because it's truth. It is true, but it is also truth. The purpose of life really is summed up in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God created the world and he created mankind in his image to rule over his world as his representatives. However, mankind rebelled against God. And mankind, rather than fulfilling that role of God's representatives, rather fulfilled the role of God's enemy. But in God's grace and in his mercy, God had the right to, but did not forsake the creature's he made in his image. Rather, he served. He served his image bearers. And ultimately, he served them by becoming flesh, by assuming the nature of mankind so that he would redeem mankind by taking the penalty that was due to mankind. That penalty was death. And while death has no authority over the Lord of life, the Lord truly and really did taste death for mankind. And yes, we understand the story. He would rise from the grave and he would ascend into heaven. And yes, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But first, but first the Lord Jesus Christ was arrested. He was beaten. He was crucified. And then he died. And in the hours before his arrest, that ultimately led to his death, what did the Lord Jesus do? He turned to his immediate and most intimate disciples. He turned to instruct them. He turned to care for them. He turned to encourage them. He turned to answer some of their questions. He also turned to warn them. But before teaching them with words, he taught them through actions. And chapter 13 is just that. It's the beginning of what we know as the farewell discourse. We first have the introduction to the farewell discourse. It's the symbolic meal, chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. And then we have the farewell discourse proper, really a monologue of the Lord Jesus Christ with a few questions and things interjected. But he is teaching his disciples from chapter 13, verse 31, all the way to the end of chapter 16. And then finally, the farewell discourse concludes with that glorious prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. But again, before teaching his disciple through words, Jesus teaches them through washing their feet. And really, this foot washing ceremony, if you will, is an action that prefigures 
It's an action that prefigures and foreshadows what is about to take place at the cross. The disciples of Jesus need his service, yet Jesus is the one who must be served. But to serve Jesus, you must be cleansed by Jesus. To serve Jesus, you must be cleansed by Jesus. And so this foot washing is a symbolic picture of the gospel by which those who believe the gospel are set apart to serve the one who has served them. That's really the main idea of our passage this morning, saints. In this passage, we see five facets of the gospel so that the church may adore and follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five facets of the gospel so that you and I may adore and follow Christ. In other words, this text shows us the truths of the gospel on display in the actions of Christ and in the words of Christ so that you may see Christ and so that you may live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The five facets of the gospel that we'll go through this morning are outlined before you. It's the love of Christ, the service of Christ, the need for Christ, the example of Christ, and the knowledge of Christ. Let us begin with the first facet, the love of Christ in verse 1. The text says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had, become to, that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This verse is kind of an introduction to everything that follows in the farewell discourse. It's a verse that looks at what Jesus still has to do, but it's also a verse that looks at what Jesus had already done. The cross was still before him, but while the Lord Jesus Christ was marching toward the cross, you know what else he was doing? He was simultaneously loving his own. The Lord was about to leave this world to be with the Father by means of the, of the cross. Yet his love for the disciples who are in the world is magnified as he does so. In a single verse, we see at least two things. We see the sovereign knowledge of God and we see the sovereign love of God. And notice the, the cosmological context. We so often think of Jesus was a man who was in Israel and he did these things and that's true. But John sets this up in such a way that we have to take a step back and realize that there are cosmological ramifications here. It says that he was about to depart out of this world, loving his own who were in the world. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for the world, and it has ramifications for the world. And we see his sovereign knowledge. I love that it says Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus was aware of these things, in other words. This is God's plan of redemption. Repeatedly, as we have worked our way through this gospel, what have we heard? His hour or his time had not yet come. But toward the end of chapter 12, and now here, we see that his hour had come. There's no element of surprise, at least on the divine side. 
So you and I are often surprised by the events of and the circumstances in this world, but our Lord is not. His hour had now come, so he spends several hours preparing his disciples for his departure, which is an expression of his love. And it says that he loved his own. Those two words are prominent, and it has to be understood in light of the prologue. Remember in John chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to every man or everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Christ is to be received by faith, yet Christ coming to his own is an act of love. Although his own people did not receive him, Jesus still knew his own and he still loved his own. On the macro level, we see Jesus coming to Israel, him serving and him preaching and him teaching and the vast majority of them rejecting him. It's almost a converse on the micro level. We see him choosing and loving his own disciples. And the vast majority of them would love him in return if there was one who would not. Nevertheless, there's a sense in which Judas was truly loved by Jesus. How do we know that? Because Judas himself would get his feet washed by Jesus. It says that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. There's debate here. What does it mean to, to love someone to the end? It can mean one of two things in the Greek. It means he loved them fully or completely. Or it could mean that he loved them to the final point of his ministry. Now that we have this transition that the cross is coming, did he love them up to that point or did he love them fully, completely? And I see no reason to choose one over the other, but I do think John is pointing to the finality of his ministry. I think that John is saying that there's a, this, this monumental shift that's going to take place that John is making us look forward to the cross and say up to the point of the cross and maybe even the cross itself being the most visible expression of his love, he loved them to the point of death. Jesus loved his own at the beginning of his public ministry and now even at the close of that ministry, he still loves his own. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we know that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You kind of flippantly say, I love you to death. But in a very real way, Jesus loved his own to death. The love of Christ, beloved, is the first facet of the gospel. You don't deserve it. You don't fully grasp it. You can barely conceive of it, but you must embrace it. You must embrace it. Before you love Christ, the reality of his love for you must be impressed upon you. 
It must be impressed upon you. For as John would say elsewhere, we love him because he first loved us. Love of Christ is expressed in the service of Christ, and this brings us to our next facet of the gospel, which is just that, the service of Christ. Look at with me, please, at verses 2 through 5. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, arose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The first thing that we should notice is that it says during supper. During supper. The foot washing taking place during the supper is peculiar, to say the least, as it would customarily be done before the supper. And so we're not exactly sure, we're not there, whether the disciples already had their feet washed once before the dinner and now the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do it again, or if this foot washing was the first time they had their feet washed that night. We're not sure. But it really makes no difference. What we want to point out is this. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ got up and washed their feet while supper was already in progress highlights the importance of his action. All of his disciples would have wondered, what is he doing in this moment? And it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Remember back in chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, after the Lord Jesus Christ feeds many and then preaches and teaches, many of his disciples leave and he says to the 12, do you want to leave also? And Peter famously says, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. and We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus' response was not an applause, but it was this. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus is pointed out as a devil. Already in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, and we're reminded as we work our way through the Gospel that not only is mankind opposed to Jesus, but Satan himself is opposed to Jesus. Paul would remind us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Nevertheless, while Judas had already had it in his heart to, to, be, to betray Jesus, and Jesus is knowing this, that's not what's emphasized here. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. I just love that. That God is totally and completely in control and that Jesus is totally and completely in control. He's well aware of what is going on. We see the, the term new in verse 1 of chapter 13 and now we see the term knowing in verse 3 of chapter 13. 
And in the Greek, it's the exact same term. It creates a frame around the satanic influence of Jesus, of Judas rather, in verse 2. I like what commentator Edward Klink says here. He says, and I quote, On both sides of this historical conflict with Judas and the cosmological conflict with the devil is the love and power of God. God is not loving but powerless, nor is he powerful but unloving. He is simultaneously both. God is the perfection of love and power made manifest in Jesus, especially, especially as his cross approaches. And all of this, even the conflict still to come, was part of the plan of God, from whom and to whom the Son moves as he fulfills the mission of God. He's in control. He knows what's going on. He's completing the mission of the Father. And so during supper, Jesus, knowing all of this, he gets up. He rose. And notice that John's gospel does not focus on the supper itself. The other gospels do. But rather, John's gospel focuses on the action of Christ during the supper. Here, the power and love of Christ being made manifest and expressed in service. Yes, he is in control, yet he also crouches down. Yes, he knows everything, yet he also kneels to every disciple. And he removes his outer garments. The removal of the outer garments and the tying of the towel equates to Jesus literally dressing as a slave. Jesus pouring the water into the basin literally equates to Jesus behaving like a slave. And then finally, Jesus washing the feet of his disciple literally equates to Jesus being a slave. Truly, this is the servant of the Lord performing an act of service that prefigures his ultimate act of service on the cross. And it's so hard for us to grasp what's going on in this text. It's so hard for us to get it. If we were to read Greco-Roman literature, we would quickly come to the conclusion that foot washing was equivalent to slavery or servanthood. The majority of men would travel on the countryside and throughout the city with dusty roads, with sandals that covered nothing but the sole of their feet, and it would be tied on top with a few straps and if you wanted to have friends over for dinner, it was expected that upon arrival, a servant, a slave, would wash the feet of your friends. That was the expectation. It was an act of hospitality. But a superior would never, a superior would never wash the feet of an inferior. To put it another way, a person of great status would never wash the feet of a peasant. But here... In this text, Jesus, the superior, the one with the highest status, he washes the feet of those who are inferior, of those who were merely uneducated fishermen and common people. This is backward for us. Innately, when we read this text, if we understand a little bit about who the person of Christ is, we, we say, no, this shouldn't be so. 
How is it that the Lord of glory stoops down to wash the feet of mere men? Men who do not yet fully trust him. Men who do not yet fully understand him. Men who, in a very short period of time, will forsake him. Men like you and me. This is the service of Christ. This is the service of Christ. He offers everything to we who have nothing to offer. He serves us, although it is we who should be serving him. This is the humble service of Christ, but you need to understand this, beloved, that while on one hand it takes humility to serve, it also takes humility to be served. It also takes humility to be served. And this brings us to our third facet of the gospel, the need for Christ. The need for Christ. Look with me, please, at verses 6 through 11. We're going to see here an exchange between Peter and Christ. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what, am, what I am doing you do, do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I did not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. This dialogue between Peter and Christ is really a dialogue between us and Christ in some sense. Peter understands the social awkwardness, to say it lightly, of Jesus washing his feet. He understands that the inferior is to serve the superior, not the other way around. And so he is perplexed and he posits the backwardness of this situation with a question that expects a negative response. Lord, do you wash my feet? But really, Peter's the one who's out of line. For Peter underestimates his need to be washed by Christ. Christ graciously offers to wash Peter's feet, and in that moment, you know what Peter's doing? He's rejecting the grace of God. Jesus understands that Peter doesn't understand, but he also understands that Peter will understand. For Christ is always faithful. Listen now, Christ is always faithful to reveal to his elect their need for him. You can push, you can prod, but if you have been chosen by him before the foundation of the world, he is faithful to show you your need for him. And Christ will indeed bring Peter along. Although Jesus insists upon Peter's future understanding, Peter really doubles down. He says, you shall never wash my feet. In the Greek, this is the strongest negation possible. In the Greek, it says, ume. And I always remember ume because ume means no way. No way. Not going to happen, Lord. 
But it's even stronger than that. Because the Greek could literally be translated, you will never wash my feet into eternity. That's a strong negation. And John's use of the term eternity in the Greek is ironic. Because Peter needs one thing. One thing to be secure for the rest of eternity. And that's to be washed by Christ. And the same is true of us. How many of us have errantly rejected the gracious offer of the Lord to be washed, to be cleansed? Some measure of self-righteousness. No, you don't get it, Lord. I'm okay. No, you will not serve me in this way because I don't need it. But Jesus replies, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. At this point, it becomes clear that the foot washing is something more than a foot washing. That will be clarified in the text in a moment. The significance of what Christ is offering is not just a generous or a gracious act of service, but it is also a necessity. To deny this washing is to deny one's right to have a share or a place with Christ. Peter doesn't have it all figured out. But you know what he does have figured out? He understands that to have no share with Christ is not a good option. Say what you will about Peter. You may love him. You may hate him. But I'm willing to bet whatever you say about Peter, to some extent you're saying about yourself. Is he stubborn? Yes. Is he impulsive? Yes. Does he speak too quickly often? Yes. Is he too sure of himself at times? Yes. Is he fickle? Does he go back and forth? Yes. Is he prideful? Does he come off arrogantly? Yes. But he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that Christ is greater than him. And most importantly, he is loved by Christ. He's loved by Christ. And I love Peter because I see myself in Peter. And I love Christ because Christ loves men like Peter. So what does Peter do? pulls a complete 180. He pulls a complete 180. Lord, not my feet only, but also my, my hands and my head. Peter goes from declaring that Jesus cannot wash any part of him to pretty much saying, Lord, wash all of me. And Peter is getting closer, but he still does not understand the washing. At first, he rejects the service that Christ offers, but now he seeks to modify the service that Christ offers. Just take this away. Beloved, what Jesus offers is sufficient. What Jesus offers is sufficient. Do not reject what he offers. Do not modify what he offers. Simply receive what Jesus offers and rest. Simply take what Jesus has given 
and relax. But Christ once again proves that he is the good shepherd who leads his sheep. He simply says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And there's two different words used here in the Greek. It's translated well here in the ESV. There's a distinction between bathe and wash. And John, one of the beautiful things about John is literarily there's a lot going on. Very simple language, but a beautiful piece of literature. Oftentimes, John uses two, sometimes even three words that are similar as synonyms throughout his gospel. But when he uses similar words in very close context, more often than not, he's trying to uh, display some measure of nuance. And that's exactly what's going on here. Here we see that, the, that there is a greater cleansing behind this foot washing. Peter is said to be completely clean before Jesus even washes his feet. We'll see in a couple of chapters that in chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus also says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. It seems that Jesus is indicating that right relationship with Jesus renders one completely clean. That right relationship with Jesus renders one completely clean. And we start to get the picture that this foot washing is, is more than a foot washing, but it's pointing us forward to the cross of Christ. This bathing must be a reference to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and his subsequent burial and resurrection. However, it is already applied to Peter. For Peter was foreknown and chosen by Christ, and from the divine perspective, the finished work of Christ has been eternally perceived, and it is as good as done. And so we might ask a question. If Peter and the other disciples are already completely clean, then why does Jesus wash their feet? question has been debated for centuries, literally, and you can find many answers to those questions. And I'm just going to leave it to you to look into the intricacies of those questions and the answers that follow, but I will tell you plainly what makes sense to me based on the text and the surrounding context. First, we have to remember this, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the cause and the means by which one is made completely clean. We have to understand that. However, Jesus is not the only one who can wash his disciples' feet. In verse 14, he says, you are to wash one another's feet. And so in light of the fact that disciples are told to wash one another's feet, it seems to me that Jesus is giving this, foot, this first foot washing as a symbol of humble service to anoint these disciples for humble service themselves for humble service themselves. The disciples are already clean, but they are going to be given the task of continuing Jesus's humble service in this world once he departs from this world. And if we just pause for a moment and think about what's coming in the greater context of the farewell discourse, you have to remember that the remainder of the farewell discourse is Jesus's promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the preparation, Jesus's preparation of his disciples for future ministry which is enabled by the Holy Spirit. And then it's Jesus' prayer for his immediate disciples and his future disciples, which is the church, to be faithful in this world, to be in the world but not taken out of the world. 
And so therefore, it seems to me that this foot washing is, yes, a real act that has culturally practical benefits, but it's more than that. It is also a symbolic act of humble service of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had already completely cleansed his people, but who also paved the way for them to wash one another's feet by washing their feet. But as soon as we work through that, we are immediately reminded that there is an exception. There's an exception to this symbolic act. He says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. At this point, the readers know more than Peter did in that moment. Nevertheless, the facet of the gospel remains. We have a need for Christ. We have a need for Christ. And only a person humbled before God and rightly seeing themselves can confess their need for Christ. It's exactly what we spent time doing this morning as Pastor Kevin led us through Psalm 51 and we considered our sin. When we see ourselves as we truly are, the only logical outcome is I need one greater than myself. And that person is Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the humble servant, but we must be humble enough to receive his service. We need cleansing and we need washing. You and I need Christ, beloved. This brings us to the fourth facet of the gospel, the example of Christ. Look with me at verses 12 through 17, please. It said, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus explains the foot washing after completing it. It is here that we learn the gospel is more than an example, but that it is also exemplary. We don't simply boil down the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ to, oh, what a great example, how to love, as some people do. No, it's much more than that. We're talking about penal substitutionary atonement. We're talking about our sins being forgiven. We're talking about a transaction that takes place. But in the very same breath, we must realize that there are exemplary aspects to the gospel, such that Jesus says, I've given you an example. He first says, do you understand what I've done? for you. And he already knows the answer to that question. We see that in verse 7 when he tells Peter, you don't understand now, but you will understand. But nevertheless, he asked the question to prepare them to receive his teaching. One of the things that I love about Jesus as we work through any of the gospels, really, is that he is the greatest teacher on the face of the earth, whoever walked the earth. But he's more than that. We can't just say he was a great teacher. He was a great man. He was a prophet. No, but he was a great teacher, but he's more than that. And he effectively teaches his disciples. And part of his effective teaching seems to be these rhetorical questions. He welcomes them to think and to ruminate about what he has just done. Do you understand what I have done for you? He invites them to think, and then he explains. You call me Lord and teacher, and you are right, 
for so I am. So he's establishing the reality that he, the superior, just did an act that an inferior is supposed to do. You call me you Lord, you call me your master, and you're right, I am those things. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to do the same. You ought to do the same. For I have given you an example, he says. And then he says that a servant's not greater than his master, a messenger not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the one who sends. The disciples are the servants. They are the messengers. And so if the servant is not greater than his master, and if the master sacrificially serves, then what's the necessary outcome? If the messenger is not greater than the one who sent him, and if the one who sent him serves, then what's the necessary outcome? Serve. Serve, saints. Serve. It's, it's that simple. Jesus says, I'm great. You call me Lord, you call me master, you call me to, you're right about those things and I've just served you, so you're to go and do likewise. We're about servants of the one who has served us. We have been served by our master and so we must serve one another. And Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus has just taught them the meaning of his actions. The implication is that they do know they just received his teaching. But you know what? The blessing is not in knowing, saints. Please hear that. The blessing is not in knowing. I don't care how much systematic theology you know. I don't care how many Bible verses you've memorized. I want you to know God, yes, through his word, and then seeing God and knowing God, you go and do likewise. The blessing is in knowing and in doing. He says, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing is not in our understanding, but in our understanding and in our serving. And in reality, the one who truly and deeply knows Jesus and his gospel they respond to that knowledge with service. It's really a mark of true belief. Faith without works is dead, yet we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So, my simple encouragement, your response, the practical point of application, is to get on your knees Start washing feet. In response to Christ and to one another. And this brings us to our final facet of the gospel. The knowledge of Christ. Look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We're immediately struck with that phrase, I know. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. 
Chapter one, Jesus knew. Or I'm sorry, verse one, Jesus knew. Verse three, Jesus knowing. Verse 11, for he knew. Jesus knows. Throughout this text, the sovereignty of God and the person of Christ is on full displays and he knows whom he has chosen. We saw earlier in chapter six, verse 70, that he says he's chosen the 12, but that one of them is the devil. And here he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And so Judas is simultaneously chosen and not chosen. Yes, he's chosen to be a earthly disciple to follow Christ, but he's also chosen in a negative sense or not chosen to be a true disciple of Christ. Listen again to what Edward Clink says. The inclusion of Judas in the intimate events that just transpire so much so that he would have also had his feet washed by Jesus was not a mistake. Was not a mistake, but a part of the plan of God to which the scriptures themselves pointed long before. Quoting from the Old Testament, Jesus uses Psalm 41.9 to give commentary on the one who is not who has not been chosen, at least chosen in a positive sense. Next week, we'll look at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. But Jesus is emphasizing. He knows all things. Eleven he has chosen before the foundation of the world. He has cleansed them. They are completely clean. Yet Judas is excluded. And why? Why these repeated allusions and statements about the betrayer in our text? The text itself tells us that Jesus' predictive prophecy is for the purpose of eliciting trust from his faithful disciples. disciples. When the things that Jesus spoke of came to fruition, then they would obtain, or at least should obtain, a deeper knowledge of what Jesus already knew and what Jesus already revealed to them. Namely that, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It wraps up in this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Verse 20 is interesting because I think it even gives further evidence that Jesus is, by washing his disciples' feet, preparing them and anointing them for future ministry. Jesus represents the Father, and so also Jesus' disciples are to represent him and carry out the mission that will be given them after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, brothers and sisters and friends, we have seen five facets. There are more facets of the gospel but in this text, we have seen five facets of the gospel. Why? So that the church may simply adore Christ and follow the example that the Lord Jesus Christ set before us. You have been served. Do you hear me, saints? You've been served by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now serve one another, and in so doing, you will be serving the one who served you. Father, would you help us to grasp these realities? 
It's so hard for us, God, to comprehend what we just read, what we just discussed, what we just heard. That the Lord of glory would assume the nature of mankind and not simply walk among us, not simply preach and teach, not simply perform signs and wonders. But on the very night that he was arrested, he would get on his knees and he would serve sinful men because he loved them to the end. Lord, what can we say? What can we do? How are we to respond? We simply kneel in humility and we say, thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that you love what we would say are the unlovable. That you pay the penalty on the cross. But it's not merely for our salvation. It's also for our transformation. That you've given us of your spirit that we might say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. That we might be people who truly adore Christ and respond to the person and work of Christ by following his example. It's our prayer collectively this morning, Lord, that you would help us. That you would help us do that more and more, ever increasingly, for your glory, O God, first and foremost. For our joy and our benefit and our good, knowing that your commands are joy. They bring us joy when we live in a way that you've called us to live. All there is joy in serving and following the ways of the Lord. But Lord, that we'd also have an eye toward others. Your glory, our good, the benefit of others. Help us, O oh God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.